Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn them, turn in them, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. Our main text is going to be Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. But we're going to be looking, we're going to use uh, verses 5 through 14 to explain 3 and 4. And then we're going to, when we get started here, we're going to begin by praying in verses 16 through 19, specifically for this church to God, that God would do the work, the same work that Paul prayed would be done in the churches at Ephesus. We're going to pray that God would do that same work amongst us. As we've been learning over the last several weeks, the last three weeks specifically, we've been learning a lot about God and what He has done. We're going to be speaking about God today, specifically about His glory alone. Today's sermon is entitled, Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. It's the last of our five solas. And Soli Deo Gloria is the Latin for God or God's glory alone. God's glory alone. Everything that we have talked about, including Scripture, has been because God is glorifying Himself. Now to us, that immediately sounds problematic. If we begin to glorify ourselves, it would be a problem because we know we are not most glorious. The mirror tells us that every morning. We, we stand up in front of that mirror and we know we are far from glorious. And if you're married, if the mirror doesn't tell you first, your wife will tell you, you need to be more glorious than you are at this moment, specifically your hair and your breath. Everyone has bad morning breath. I think God gave us bad morning breath just to humble us, lest we think we're special. We're looking good, we get ourselves in our suit, we go off to work, we get in our fancy car that we can't pay for, we leave our house, we wonder if we left the coffee pot on for that house we can't pay for, we don't want it to burn down, and we get in our car and we get to work and someone smells our breath and we realize we're not as glorious as we think we are. And it is good for us to realize we are not glorious it is a gift to you to remind you that you are not glorious because if you think that you and human beings like you are glorious, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Human beings are not going to be the ones that we glorify. They're not the, the objects of our glory. Now, God is a different matter altogether. God is not simply the best of us. He is the best of us, but He is not simply the best of us. He is the best of all possible best. He is so best and so glorious that He defines what best is and He defines what glorious is according to Himself. That if you want to know what best and what glory is, you look no further than God. People ask me from time to time, why is it that God doesn't appear in his glory to us? How come God doesn't show himself to us? Uh, it's probably for your safety. We know that Paul had a thorn in the flesh and there is some, there is some uh, 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 
debate between or amongst scholars about what that thorn in the flesh was, but most would say today it was probably his, a physical thorn. It wasn't a moral thorn, but a physical thorn. Probably his blindness, because we know in several places he mentions how his, his eyes, he says, at one point you would have given me your eyes if you could. And in another one, he says, see with what big letters I write this letter to you. Uh, he used a, a, a person to write his letters for him because he was so blind. And it's very likely that it was after that occurrence of encountering God and his glory on the road to Damascus that Paul's damage, his eyesight was damaged forever. I mean, God is so glorious that in Revelation 21, it tells us that there is no more need for the sun. It is simply the glory of God's radiance that will fill the heavens and the new earth. We, we won't need any sun. His glory will be enough. And, and, I, and I suspect he's going to have to find some way to minimize that because if we were to be in his glory, no one could stand. Okay, so then, to say... That God works all things together for his glory alone is to say that he is the only one who deserves worship, glory, and praise. Okay, so compare yourself, if you want, to the glory of God, if that's what you need. If what I'm saying this morning is not self-obvious to all Christians, that God is infinitely more glorious than the created thing. That the creator is always infinitely more glorious than the created thing. If, if I need to convince you of that this morning, okay, we're going to pray that the Lord convinces us of this in just a moment. But if you need that, just think about how unglorious you are and how ultimately glorious he is. You're running in different directions. If God's running towards greater and greater glory, he's not. He's completely glorious. If he is all glorious, you are running in the opposite direction. Of glory. Now, I hope in the church of God that is not a troubling thing to say. I hope that we, when we come here, we begin the journey away from ourselves and towards God. We want to cultivate a greater love for God and not for ourselves. A greater love for God is our aim. Because he alone, he alone is worthy of our worship and praise. So let's pray then this morning several things. Let us bow in prayer. Father, I pray as the Apostle Paul prayed that you, Father, through Jesus Christ, would give the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. God, I pray that you would give this spirit today to lay upon us so that we might understand how glorious you are. Lord, don't let us think that things or persons are glorious, but to look beyond those things and persons and to see your glory alone. Give us that spirit. Take the shackles off of our eyes, the, the blinders off of our eyes, the shackles off of our feet, to run towards your glory, to see your glory. Lord, don't let us be fettered this morning by the false thought that there is any glory to be found in the created thing, we are to worship the Creator who is forever praised. Lord, give us eyes, as your word says, that we might have eyes, that our hearts might be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope, that we all may know what is the hope to which you have called us. Give us eyes this morning, God. You gave us physical eyes, 
You gave us those, God, and they are magnificent in what they do. We, we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you in the wonderful mystery of how the human eye even works. But Lord, we pray for spiritual eyes this morning, that you would give eyes to blind people, those who are spiritually blind. And to me, Lord God, strengthen every Christian brother and sister here among us, that their sight might be greater to see your glory and to look into your glory. Give us those eyes to see it and to behold you. Lord, we pray that you and your Holy Spirit alone would do the work that only you do. Lord, Let us be able to say as we leave today and forevermore, to God be the glory alone. Amen. Glory is a word that eludes us. This morning I picked on Jeff in our Sunday school class. I I picked the smartest among us. I always tell Jeff he needs that. Um, So I said, Jeff, he's, he's a wordsmith. And I said, Jeff, define for us the word glory. And he started to stutter. He said something like, um, uh, well, um, um, it's, um, and I wanted to prove to everybody just how hard this task of defining glory is because here's the smartest one of us. And then I went this week and I began to look at the word glory to try and define the word glory. And it's such a hard word to define because even in the definition, the definition, the words that define it are imprecise themselves. The word can mean beauty. It can mean opinion. In fact, the Greek word for glory is the word doxa. It's the, the, the word most often translated as the word doxa from which we get doxology. It's the idea of praising and glorifying God. And actually doxa just means opinion. That's all it means. Opinion. It can mean in the Old Testament, when you see the, the word translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, use, or into the English, you usually see that glory is referring to God's radiance, or his brightness, or his beauty, or his majesty. It's a very elusive word. And you'll hear people from time to time, and pastors from time to time, and Christians talk about glorifying God, but we need to spell it out. What, is it, what, what do I do? How do I glorify him? How do I make his, his glory manifest in my life? The verb glorify increases the difficulty of the matter even more. How does one ascribe magnificence or beauty to another? How does one give glory to another person? How do we give glory to an infinitely glorious being? It's a very elusive word. What was cool was at the exact moment that I was writing that last sentence of how do you give glory to someone, I was sitting in my office and my daughter was sitting there. She had just finished her K-4 program and she looked so cute. I mean, she had on the white dress and her hair was just so cute. And her hair looks cute when mommy does it. And she said to me while she was sitting in her chair and I was at my desk working and I just had written that last sentence, how do we define glory? And she said to me, Daddy, look at me. I said, okay, what do you want me to see? Am I pretty? Oh, you know what I said. You know what I said. You are so pretty and you belong to Daddy forever.
What did she want? She wanted glory. And God is saying to you this morning, look at me. Look at me. You got cancer? Look past it. Look at me. You lost a loved one this month, this past week? Look at me. You're doing really well and life is perfect and you've got all the money in the world? Look at me. Look at my beauty. Don't worship the created thing. It will never save you. Make God most glorious. Look at him. That's what glory really means. As I was reading it, even the Bible began to pale into comparison to the subject of its pages, the glory of God. Even the Bible seemed less glorious to the glorious God who wrote it because the creator is always magnificent and more magnificent than the created thing. The doctrine of soli deo gloria means that God alone is to be glorified for his gracious work of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are a lot of things that we could glorify God for. We can glorify God for the works of creation. We can glorify God. You can read through the Psalms, and David has many things that he could praise and glorify God for. He praises God for the heavens because the heavens declare his glory. He praises God for his law because his law is perfect. He praises God for his word and for his statutes and for his reprovement. He praises God for his deliverance. He praises God for so many things and there are so many things to glorify God. But this particular doctrine this morning of soli deo gloria is to glorify God in a very, very special sense, the most special sense of the New Testament. It is to glorify God that salvation is of the Lord alone. Salvation is God's work alone. Listen to what I am saying this morning. You, you are saved by God alone by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And if you don't find that in the same pages of scriptures this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you to see that. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for sinners through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. I asked a group of 30 Christian 8th graders this past week, who were waiting on pizza as I was presenting a, a gospel message to a, a school in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. What is the gospel? I said, how many of you believe the gospel is important? Very important. And they all raised their hand. And then I asked them to explain or to define what the gospel is. And they all had a little something else to say. And I said, them, I said this to them. I said, don't worry, adults can't do any better than you. If I asked that question this morning, what is the gospel, we would struggle at it. We would all say it was ultimately important, and then we would all struggle to even define it. What is it? Okay, well, let me give you the definition. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for sinners through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. It is what God has done, the good news of what God has done for sinners through the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria is the explanation for why a worthy God saves unworthy sinners for his glory alone. Ask the question, 
Why did God save any of us? Answer it for his glory alone. Let's look at our passage this morning. Two things I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about two things. First, I want to talk about realizing and responding. Realizing and responding. Look at verse 3. Paul begins in this way. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The subject of our passage this morning is praising God the Father for his blessings that he has poured out on us through his Son, Jesus Christ. That is the subject. The passage indicates that God the Father predestines and blesses His people according to the glory or for His glory alone. And that's why in the very first word you see there is the word blessed. Paul is praising God. And our job today, we see that this is going to be a psalm of praise. It's going to be Paul praising God for what he's done. Well, what in particular is God Or is Paul focusing on what has God done? This morning I want us to realize something. What is realized in this passage is what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. That salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God's work. In every part, even from before time began, God has blessed us in a special way with salvation. The little word there, even, that begins verse 4, connects it to verse 3, and it means something like since. So we bless God, let's be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even is really the beginning of Paul's explanation of what those blessings in the heavenly places means. What does that mean? So Paul is talking about praising God for his blessings upon us. But what type of blessings? So we want to make a distinction at the beginning that Paul is not talking about blessings in general. He is not talking about common grace. He is talking about saving grace. Common grace versus saving grace. So when I got to this gospel presentation this past week and I was gonna, I, I was I realized that my time was being cut further and further and shorter and shorter, and what I thought I had was an hour turned into 20 minutes. There was pizza there. The the I mean, this is a pizza with eighth graders. I mean, if I put a stack of pizzas right here and said, when I finish, you guys can have it. Nobody's excited about the, the bread here. I mean, we're excited about the moment, but that bread doesn't taste like Papa John's pizzas. If we had Papa John's pizzas, maybe we'd have more people here for the Lord's Supper. But the kids were antsy, and I had one thing to tell them, and one, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to select one of these special little nuggets to explain to these eighth graders what the gospel is and what it is not, and one of the first things I had to say to them, so I I selected one, and the major one that I selected was this, the gospel is not success in this life. The gospel is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Okay, so... Let me just take for a moment what I'm saying here. We're going to read a passage that praises God and worships God and blesses God for his blessings. And the blessings mentioned in this passage are not health, wealth, and prosperity. 
I asked my Sunday school class this morning, how many churches do you think are saying what I just said in our neighborhood this morning? You can come to Jesus today and die in a fiery car crash on your way home. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not you will never get sick, you will always prosper, you will have wealth. The gospel is not if you have a little bit more faith, you're going to get those things. That's not what we're praising God for this morning. It's not the work of common graces. And if he does give you health, it's from him. If you have health today, it's from him. If you have wealth today, it's from him. If you have prosperity today, it's from him. But that's not the gospel. And so those are God's common graces. That's what God gives to all people. He even gives it to unbelievers. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust so that even people who curse his name, even they have blessings of God's common grace. But we're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about God's saving grace. Saving grace is that special sort of grace whereby God predestines those whom he chooses from before the foundation of the world to his salvation, ensuring that every requirement necessary for salvation will be satisfied precisely because it is God who saves. That is God's saving grace. But not only do we have to realize this this morning, what, what's being talked about, we have to respond once we realize that God is the author of our salvation, that God saves us, that not one single part of salvation has been accomplished by us, not one single part of salvation has been accomplished by us, even the faith we exercise was produced by the new life given to us by the Holy Spirit, the only expression that we can have when we come here is praise and worship. Maybe one of the reasons why we don't sing as loud as we should be singing during our praise and worship times is because we don't understand just how glorious and good this God truly is. Donald Bloss said, he's a theologian, he said, Because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory that we must glorify Him always. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under His authority and for His glory alone because of what God has done. So we realize what God's done. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then we're going to make sure we respond appropriately. Tom Rainer said this. He's a, he's a statistician. He said, For 2,000 years, the local church, as messy as it is, has been God's place for believers to gather, to worship, and minister, and be accountable to one another. But the church, according to the statistics and according to our own eyeballs, has become unimportant in the lives of Americans today. It's become unimportant. 20 years ago, a person was considered to be a committed member of a local church if they attended three times a week. Today, a person is considered to be a committed member if they attend church three times a month, and that's any church. Mr. Burfield told me that there is a church in his mother's hometown that considers a person a committed member if they attend once every three months. 
And when they do, they get a $100 gift card to Walmart. Now you believe that, right? I hope you do. Because every pastor in the world right now is throwing his arms up in the air and throwing his Bible up in the air saying, how can I get these seats right here filled and those seats up there filled and they're going to bring in everything they can. They're going to bring in a dog and pony show and they're going to do all kinds of silly things and they're going to tell you, hey, listen, nothing ever bad is going to happen to you if you just have faith. And then when you come in and you say, I got cancer, they say, well, you just didn't have faith because they always got that scapegoat and we're all scrambling and I just think what's happened is God is saying, look at me, and we're not looking at him. We're looking at everything but God. We don't need God. We've got a smartphone, and we can do whatever we want with an app. I, I've got an app. I can do it. I've got work. I've got children. I've got career. I just don't need God. He's just, I'm just too busy for him. I don't need him. And so we see, what, what, what we should expect to see is that God used to be important in our lives and now he's not important in our lives. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be legalistic about people coming to church, okay? We understand that you go on vacation and we, we understand that people get sick. But when the church is faithful to God and it's looking after his face. Let's just be honest. It looks different, doesn't it? The church looks different, doesn't it? You don't complain about, about tired, do you, when you want to, to experience the glory of God, do you? No. It, it looks different. You, you ask a modern-day Christian as to why they attend church less, they're going to say something like, I'm too busy, or I live too far, or I'm too tired. And I agree that all those things are true, that you're too busy and you're too tired and you live too far. Most of us are too busy for church, and we do live too far from our church. And we have given so much time and energy in the week to other things rather than God, so that when God's time comes around, we just don't have enough to give him. I believe that that's true. Listen to what I'm saying. I believe that that's true. So you don't need to convince me of that. But I want to change it. I think you're looking for glory in the wrong places. I think you're looking for God to be the means to the end. He's the packing peanuts of your life. He puts, you, you, you take your, your college and you put it in your box. You worked really hard there. You take your money and you put it in your box and you, you, you take your kids and your wife and your health and your diet and you put it in the box and this is what really matters. And so in order to keep this stuff safe, we put the packing peanuts of God around these things and we tighten it up and we hope to get it from point A to point B. And instead of God being the object of most importance, all he is is the means to an end. He's the packing peanuts of our life. If you don't believe me, just look at the way you pray. 
Does your prayer begin with hallowed be your name or does it begin with gimme, gimme, gimme? Protect, protect, protect. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, but never do we begin with, God, you're so glorious. Just make your face sign. Just you be the end, you be my portion. I want you today. No, we want everything but God. And we want God to be the packing peanuts to keep our things safe. So that instead of God saying, look at me, I'm a father, have a relationship with me, we treat our prayers like a genie. Gimme. I don't care about the genie. You go watch the movie Aladdin. It's very profound in this way. One of the, it's the kids' movie Aladdin. The genie knows that nobody cares about the genie. They only care about what they can get from him. And that's how we treat our God. What can you give me today? God says, I can give you something. Me. And you know what happens when God... When you begin to pray and you ask God to give you things, you know what happens? He gives them to you. And they fail. And they die. And they disappoint. So that you will look past the created thing to the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Romans 1, they have worshipped the created thing. Even I made that, and they've worshipped that instead of me. I I don't know what to do. I don't have a five-step program to getting adult Christians to recognize how unbelievably awesome God's salvation of us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone truly is. I don't have a five-step program. I I don't know what to do to tell you to, to get that. And so I, like Paul, began this morning praying that he gives you eyes in your head to see his glory. Listen, Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, I pray that God will give you everything you need to have him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now that's my prayer this morning. But we don't see salvation, and when I see that the people don't see the salvation as the precious gift of God, by which if he did not act at all, all of us would not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior, and we would remain dead in our trespasses and sin. When you see that, pray that the God who gives life will give life. If God is important to us, our walk with him looks different. We're going to want to know him more, be around him more, have a real relationship with him, be with his family, sing his praises, shout blessings of his name. And as Paul said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just saying if we truly understood how great 
the gift of salvation is, our worship of God would not be an afterthought. It would not be, listen, I, I did not know. I thought Sunday was the last day of the week growing up. Hey, many of you think the same thing too. You treat it like that. I hear people tell me all the time, I got to use Sunday to get ready for Monday. Oh, Sunday's day one. You're seeing the glory of things and not the glory of God. If we really believe this, we'd have to lock the doors on Sunday morning to keep you away from his house if you really had the eyes to see him. You say, what about you? Yeah, me too. This week, I just, when I was going through this passage, I just saw how many times I run after the glory of things and not after the glory of him. All right. So let me make my second point. My second point is this. No glory for you. Point number two, no glory for you. And there was a Seinfeld, sh- uh, a show on Seinfeld, a very famous one, with the soup Nazi. And you would walk up, and if you didn't get it right, if you didn't ask for mulligatani the way he asked for you to ask for mulligatani or, or lobster bisque, he'd say, no soup for you! And they'd snatch the bag and they'd take even the bread. So you wouldn't even get the bread that they gave you for free. Well, I want to be the glory Nazi this morning. Maybe I shouldn't use Nazi. Uh, I don't want to be a Nazi. Let me just make, sure that, make that very clear. But I want to snatch the glory away from you this morning, okay? okay I want to snatch the glory. Oh, my gosh, what a welcoming, what a welp- welcoming moment to the Northwest Baptist Church. If you're a visitor this morning, I want to snatch the glory away from you. Because I believe it's where you're going to have life. Okay, number one. Here we go. You ready? Point number one. Have your Bibles. Look at your Bibles. We're going to look at these together. We'll start in verse five. Okay, we're going to look at this. These are God's special saving graces. This is for salvation. This has nothing to do with the common grace, but the special blessings of salvation in the heavenly places. Here we go. Number one, verse five. He predestined us. If you're saved, God chose you. Every Christian believes that. Every Christian believes in predestination. Every Christian believes in predestination. Two words, pre, before, destiny, where you're going to end up. That means God determined where you're going to end up before. Every Christian believes in that. There's no debate on that. What Christians debate is why God did the predestiny. Some believe that he predestined us because he looked into the future and saw all who would believe, and those who would believe, he made sure that they heard the external call of the gospel. That's what some Christians believe. But what did I tell you? Point number two of my sermon is, no glory for you. Okay, look at the passage. 
Verse 5 begins, he predestined, but in this little slip up, if you look at verse 4, verse 4 ends with these two words, in love, but it connects with verse 5 so that it says this, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. In love he predestined you. Not in your faith or any acts that you did in love. He loved you, he saved you. So no, you don't get to glory in your faith. God gave you the power to have the faith. In love he predestined you. When, look at verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before. So, so listen, so the Bible begins with the most famous verse. We know it. It's next to John 3, 16. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me paint this picture for you. Before he created the heavens and the earth, he chose you. You did nothing, good or evil, he chose you. That's it. Why? In love. No, because of my faith. In love. Gracious love. His love, not your faith. No glory for you. Number two. He adopted us as children. If you're saved, God has adopted you as his child. This means that you relate to God as a father and not as a genie, not as the big guy in the sky, not as some stranger you don't know, but as father. People ask me all the time, God, don't all people believe in the same God of the Bible? No. The God of the Bible is father. Your father if you've been saved. We get to relate to him as a child relates to her father. And some of you might have some crummy earthly fathers. Don't worry, Jesus knows what we're talking about. He knows about your crummy earthly fathers. But I'm not talking about God as Homer Simpson. American sitcoms have done a hit job on the notion of father. So I'm not talking about the dummy dad who can't get himself out of a wet paper bag. Go home and watch the sitcoms. Fathers, go home and watch the sitcoms. I'm not telling you not to watch the sitcoms and tell your kids don't watch The Simpsons. I'm telling you, you better respond to it because your boys think that dads are dummies. You say, that's not true. Go into any high school class and watch how the girls think of themselves versus the way the boys think of themselves. I taught in high school for eight years And the boys think it's the girl's job to get all the good grades. Because what they're seeing is dummy dad. Oh, if it weren't for my wife, I wouldn't even know how to put on my coat this morning. Thank God. Furthermore, when you're not around dad, all that does is buttress the stereotype. When you are that dad... 
All you do is buttress the stereotype that all dads are Homer Simpson. So that when I arrive at a passage where I begin to talk about God as father, I've got to make sure that our people are hearing me say, he's not your deadbeat daddy. Someone came to Jesus and said, what about God? What about father? And Jesus said, if your earthly fathers who are evil, he took the best of them. He said, if your earthly father would give you a good gift, he talked about fathers, good fathers. The example was, if your father asked you for a stone, would you give him a snake? No, you'd give him a, or a, a loaf of bread, would you give him a snake? No, you'd, you'd, you'd give him the bread, not a snake. And then Jesus says, if your fathers who are evil, so he takes the best dads in the world, okay? The dads who provide for their kids, and he says they're evil in comparison to your heavenly father. I have a good dad. I have no Homer Simpson dad. Compared to my heavenly father, he is evil. Our heavenly father, you are his sons and daughters. And he loves you. He adopted us as children. Number three, he redeemed us. He redeemed us. Verse seven tells us that we have redemption through his blood. The word redeem means to buy something back. Don't make the mistake here. God is not buying us back from Satan. Satan owns nothing. God is redeeming us from the debt that was owed to himself, not Satan. But God has bought us back to him through the redemption that he himself has procured for us in Christ. So a debt was owed to God. God pays that debt off with himself and buys us back. No glory for you. No glory for you. Verse 7, he forgave us of our trespasses. Number 4, he forgives us. Think about this just for a moment of what forgiveness is in terms of God forgiving us. Does the Bible say that God forgives us for some trespasses and not others? Does it say that there is a limit to God's forgiveness of our trespasses? No, you can commit the worst sins and God forgives all sins. I almost wish that wasn't true. I almost wish it were not true that God forgives the worst of sinners. I don't want redemption for a man who rapes and murders children. I don't want that. I almost wish the scripture didn't tell me that he forgives those guys, but God's forgiveness is greater than my wickedness. Now, don't presume on his grace. He will punish you in this life for living in sin. To those who, who love him, he disciplines like a child. Because after all, he's our father. And if he sees you getting out of line, he lovingly disciplines you. Thank God for discipline. Don't sit in your own pew this morning 
Don't miss the double meaning. Don't sit in your own pew this morning, however, thinking that God could never forgive you for your sins. He already has. Just receive it. He wants to forgive you this morning. And I don't know why human beings love wallowing in grudges when they know that there is forgiveness if they repent. We do this with one another. We're just going to let the grudge sit. We don't want to restore the relationship. And we know good and well if we go over to this person and ask for forgiveness, they're going to forgive us. But we don't want it. And many of you right now are saying, God can't forgive me for my sin. Yes, he can. He already has. But you have to ask for forgiveness. Go down. The Bible says he lavished, point number five, he lavished his graces upon us. Lavished in the Greek means abundance. Not only do we have these graces, but God has lavished these graces on us so that we have more than we need. And this should be a comfort to us who worry. Will God keep us saved until the end? Will God ever disown us or any of his children? Will, he ever do, will I ever do something so big and so bad that God won't forgive me for it? What about the Holy Spirit? Does he come and go? Is he only here when miracles are exploding like fireworks in my life? Or is the Holy Spirit there until the end when I'm alone? What about right now? Is God here with me? Is this Holy Spirit living in me while we're sitting here in our pews contending with him for the will of our life? The Bible says God has lavished his graces upon us so that everything we need to accomplish salvation, he has given to us. Romans 8, 37 through 39 says, no, there's nothing. God has lavished his graces so much, there's nothing in this world that can take away our sins. He says, in all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, I'm sure that not even death or life, not even angels or rulers, that, that poltergeist that you think is living in your closet, Maybe, but not even that poltergeist can separate you from the love of God. You know what? I don't know whether or not there's a demon in your house. I suspect there isn't. But I'll tell you this. If there is, he's not greater than God. And he can't separate you from the love. Not even angels is what he said. Not even rulers. What if the United States continues to go in the direction that it's going and it persecutes Christians? Can't separate us from the love of God. Nor things present or things to come or powers. Not even height or depth. You can't be too far from God. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That was exactly the hubis of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'm going to throw you boys into a fiery furnace. Then how or what God will save you now? And the boys said in great Christian confidence, whether he saves us or not, we know he is able. Whatever fiery furnace you're in right now, God is able. To God be the glory, no glory for you. He revealed to us the mysteries of his plan. He gave us an inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit while we await our inheritance. Ultimately, he has worked all things together so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
You can't contend with God this morning. If you're saved, nothing and no one, not even you, can mess that up. To God be the glory. If you're not saved this morning and you're running from God's will for you, which is to repent, He'll get you one way or another. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Listen to me, little lambs. The good shepherd will get all his sheep and he will use exactly what he has to use in your life to get you back into his fold. If you are not saved this morning, listen to this. It is to God's glory. Everything is to God's glory. Now how God gets you and how God makes you and when He makes you, I'm not privy to say, but when He does, it's to His glory alone. Let's pray. God, you are most glorious. I pray this week that we might look to your glory this week. We might look at you, put things away and look at you. Look past the struggles and the obstacles in this life to you. Look past the blessings and the health to you. Look past our wealth and our riches to you. And see your glory and see that you, God, have saved us simply for your glory alone. You are most glorious and we praise you this morning. We praise you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.